Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 155. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, all the way from the other end of the world, happy to be joined by the villain, Mr. Chris Paynes. Chris, how are you doing? Hello, sir. I'm very tired, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Much better than you. Hey, I got to ask, why are you the villain? Where does that come from? So that is Preet Mickelson. Uh, he's the guy who gave me my back belt. And he once likened my laugh to sounding like a comic book villain, like a Batman villain and stuff like that. He was like, why do you laugh like a criminal? I was like, <laughs> what do you mean a criminal? And yeah, that kind of then morphed into you sound like a villain. And I thought, you know, everyone always is like after a cool nickname in jujitsu and to get given that one, it's like, huh, I like this one. Cause you can, you can try and pick your own and it always sound terrible. But when someone gives you something like that, it's like, Oh, I'll run with this one. <laughs> yeah. You got off easy. You could have got a nickname like tree stump or pumpkin or something like that. And you get the oh, villain. Like shoe face. <laughs> that is one of my favorite things about the Brazilian nicknames. If you look at the early days of the UFC, all of the Americans have nicknames like the monster or something like that. But the Brazilians all have nicknames like tree stump. <laughs> I just, I love the lightheartedness of it. Isn't, isn't Buchecha tits or something? <laughs> I, I think it's fat cheeks. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's something awful like, <laughs> to get stuck with for the whole of your career. <laughs> well, it's especially funny in his case, because if I recall correctly, he got that nickname because he kind of had fat cheeks when he was a kid and he doesn't now he's grown up. But that, that's going to follow him for the rest of his life. He's going to be 80 and people are still going to be calling him that. <laughs> so, uh, so, like, people actually don't know his real surname half the time. It's like, oh yeah, Marcus Buchecha. It's like, that's like Marcus Fatcheeks. Like, that's not his name. <laughs> There's a lot of people, a lot of famous people in jiu-jitsu that I just don't know the real names. I mean, I did not know what Cyborg's real name was until the, the fight sports controversy, <laughs> which is an awful way to learn someone's real name. But yeah, there's just so many nicknames that just kind of get merged into the person's real name. That's one of the interesting things about Brazilian MMA as well, is that the nickname ultimately winds up supplanting the real name. But anyway, that aside, this is actually a good segue. Maybe you could quickly introduce yourself, tell everyone who you are. So yeah, my name is Chris Paynes, or The Villain Online, and I'm a UK black belt. I've never done Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oddly enough, I came in via Japanese jiu-jitsu back when I was in my early teens. It was a non-sparring style. So we just did basic ground fighting. In other words, it was start back to back and then the first person to get into kind of scarfold. Then I got my black belt in that in around about age 20, 21. 
couple of months later, I heard of this uh, judo Nawaza competition. And I, I didn't know what BJJ was or stood for at this point. I, I was a member of Bullshido, but it heavily confused me. I just never looked into what it actually stood for. So I was unaware of this, uh, this mystical style that existed. So I entered this judo Nawaza competition. And about three weeks prior, I'd heard of this legendary gym not far from my house called Fighting Fit, which was a submission grappling gym. They, I thought, well, I'm a black belt. You know, I, being a, a young, stupid teenager, uh, I thought, I'm a black belt. I've got magical powers compared to these guys. I'll go and kick their ass and then uh, I'll go into this competition in three weeks' time. And I think my coach put me in hospital the first night I tried it. He messed me up. And so I had maybe three lessons of submission grappling, wore a karate gi, and went into a judo Nawaza competition with that much ground fighting experience. And my first fight was against a BJJ blue belt. My second fight was against a purple belt. And my third fight was against a judo black belt. Um, so you can imagine how well that all went. <laughs> I got murdered quite, quite horribly. From that point on, I went back to this, this fighting fit gym and I just, just stuck at it then from there on out. And then... After about six months, uh, my coaches, they'd had like bike injuries, like come off their like mountain bikes and stuff. And they said, you know, we've got some, some pretty bad back injuries. We're going to have to take some time off. Can you look after the gym since you seem to be a bit smarter than most of the people in this room? I was like, sure. And that was mid 2009. They didn't come back. So 2010, I know it's not like North American levels of cold, but it hit minus 14 degrees that winter celsius in the uk and we were rolling nogi in this gym that didn't have any glass in the windows or heating so we just bought bjj geese just because we thought well rolling in shorts and, and hoodies right now is, is really uncomfortable did you say minus 40 degrees 14 okay <laughs> yeah, yeah luckily well yeah minus 40 that's that's weird temperature to roll in in shorts and t-shirt. Yeah, I, I was a bit confused there. For those who don't know Celsius, minus 40 is so cold that if you spit, it's going to be frozen by the time it hits <laughs> the ground. Like minus 40 is middle of Saskatchewan, Canada in the winter cold. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, if you're rolling around in your underwear in minus 40, I'm amazed you're still alive. <laughs> okay, this makes more sense. I mean, it was still pretty bad. The the water in the toilet bowl froze and the taps wouldn't turn on. So it was, it was still pretty pretty horrendous in the gym. So we ended up buying some, some jujitsu geese to try and keep warm. And yeah, it then got to the point where you didn't have any collar chokes or stuff like that. And we just started entering BJJ competitions as submission grapplers who wore, who wore geese because it was cold. Maybe every now and then I'd go down to London, uh, like maybe six to nine months, maybe do a, like a day of classes, random gyms, and then take all those techniques home. But mostly it was just down to books and uh, submissions 101. That's pretty much how I came up through jiu-jitsu. Around about 2013, end of 2012, I read the Globetrotter. I remember Christian Graugart going out and doing his, his awesome trip, the BJJ Globetrotter trip, and I remember hearing that he'd written a book about it, so I read that at the end of 2012. He then came to the UK because he went to see, I think it was Manchester United with his brother. And to kind of pay for the trip, he, he did a seminar in Bolton. So I went, oh, damn, I'm gonna, I want to go meet this guy. So I went up to Bolton, did a seminar with him, we caught the train together back to Manchester and he, he talked about this awesome idea for like a independent gym affiliate for gyms that, you know, didn't have like a BJJ connection or lineage. And I was like, dude, sign us up. And about a month later, he emailed all us original gyms and said, look, I've, I've started it. And that is then theoretically the start of my actual BJJ journey. I then got my belts fire Christian at the camps and the so I went to my first camp in uh, 2013 as a white belt. He then threw a blue belt at me when he found out I didn't have a coach. And then purple, brown under, 
under the Council of Travelling Black Belts. And then 2017, this weird Estonian guy <laughs> had, had come to the Copenhagen camp. And I've been doing camps obviously for about four years at this point and never heard of this guy. I was, you know, mid-20s purple belt. I was already competing at like black belt competitions in the UK, like local competitions, like um, entering Nogi black belt. So just prior, I think, to, to meeting pre identity open weight black belt Nogi division and be a 120 kilo black belt as a 82 kilo purple belt. And so I thought, you know, I'm doing all right. And then I heard of this Estonian black belt at the camp. I thought, who's heard of Estonia? So I thought I'd roll with them. Hey, I, I thought Estonia was some weird, like primitive country where they didn't even have computers and internet. And so I was, I was quite surprised too, when I heard that there is this John Danaher of Estonia, I believe I've heard Preet referred to as the Estonian yeah. John Danaher. And I thought, what the fuck? Uh, the Estonian John Danaher, that is something you don't expect to hear every day. Of course, listeners of the podcast know now that I'm basically like engaged to Preet Mikkelsen. But I, anyway, sorry, continue your story. <laughs> so I met Preet. It was the same camp. I think I got my brown belt from Christian. It was the end of that week. And so at the beginning of the week, I, you know, I saw this Estonian guy. He didn't really know anyone at the camp. It was his first one. And so I thought I'd roll with him and, you know, know kick his ass it went horribly wrong he he murdered me without effort he explained to me what he did like a couple of like maybe like a year later that his favorite method of murdering purple belts i was like you do you are aware that you did that to me the first time we met he went oh yes that was funny (laughs) and his usual dry wit i was lying on my back doing the kind of traditional t-rex arms framing you know against my chest under side control and he just he held me in place with just his hands and then commored and armbarred me at will and then I'd try and attack him and nothing would happen. And so I, I said, you know, please, sir, what the hell did I do wrong? And he was like, you leave your elbows out. And, you know, I'm not, I, I wasn't a white belt. I wasn't like, you know, throwing my arms in every direction. I had them pinned to my chest, but I was like, they aren't out. They're tied to my chest. And then it was uh, a couple of months later, I went to the Heidelberg camp in the Globetrotter camp in Germany. And he did a class on Hawkins and running man i realized that my understanding of what an elbow is was incorrect i was hiding my armpits yeah i was keeping my arms tucked in but my elbows yes were were in the open and it was at that point i was like oh god this guy's clever i then asked him how do i get you to the uk i want to learn learn under you i had to convince my gym of this amazing estonian guy to try and fund the trip to get him over and then the rest is history really i got my black belt under preet in 2019, we just, that kind of period from meeting Preet and realizing that everything I'd, I'd learned via going to all these different gyms and learning like the process of how different gyms teach, learning all the techniques via Jiu-Jitsu University or the old Eddie Bravo books was all wrong. And so as a brown belt, I then chucked out everything I knew about Jiu-Jitsu and started from scratch, which oddly enough, I've just done the Arizona camp of Christian and, and Preet, et cetera. And, and Christian has just adopted this kind of defensive jujitsu as well. So I presume that what we're talking about here, now that you train under Preet is, I presume your game is predominantly, you just sit on the ground like a dead fish and don't do anything and then lecture your opponent afterwards about how they couldn't tap you. That's, I believe that's how Preet's stuff works, if I understand correctly, right? I think if I did that, he'd be more proud of me. <laughs> he jokes like there's, there's been numerous people that have actually caught Preet in the past when I've been in attendance because he just, yeah, obviously he just did, does the whole dead fish thing and doesn't get stuck in anything. But maybe because I'm still 10 years younger than him and still maybe a cocky English guy, I still try and win, <laughs> which means maybe I blended it into maybe looking more like normal jujitsu afterwards. 
but yeah, we, as a gym, we had to like stop for like a large period of time, like huddle in and say, look, what we do is wrong. We have to start again. And so it's trying, trying to find a way of incorporating this odd style of jujitsu when everything you'd ever done before was based on techniques. So how do you learn, you know, you do an arm bar from side control, for example, or Kimura, but what if side control no longer exists because running man and Hawkins exists. How do you do, you know, normal style guard passing when you have grilled chicken? How do you do clock chokes and all those kind of things in turtle when there's no gaps? It kind of, it wouldn't, it wasn't going to make sense to say, right, this is how you do a technique from here, but no one's ever going to be here. So it required a lot of abandoning of everything. Just everything got chucked out. I guess probably now is as good a time as any in the off chance that someone is listening to this episode and has no idea who we're talking about, which I, I can't imagine there's many, but I guess I might as well go into it. You're talking about Preet Mikkelsen, the Estonian jiu-jitsu instructor and the creator of the defensive BJJ platform and website. He's been on our podcast numerous times. If you're not familiar with him, I always recommend that the best place to start is to go back to BJJ Mental Models episode 140, where he kind of explains the system. And if you really want to listen to Preet Ramble on, we're actually in the process of doing a a six-part series with him going through all of his defensive positions on BJJ Mental Models Premium. Insert plug premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Go there, sign up, please. Other than that, though, I think most people have probably heard of Preet and his defensive style. And it's interesting, the revelations you're talking about here, because I had a similar journey. I remember getting really close to my black belt and being really frustrated by my perceived lack of progress. And I felt like just no matter how many techniques I learned, I was having trouble just actually remembering them and pulling them off in practice and integrating them into my game. And I felt like there was just too much stuff to learn. And I was really beating myself up over it. I felt like there was just hundreds, maybe thousands of things you needed to know, techniques to know in jujitsu. And I just never felt like I was there. I never felt like I had enough. And I really started to doubt myself. And I remember one day I was rolling and I was getting really frustrated because no matter what technique I tried to do, my opponent would just like grip me and I couldn't do anything because I was just paralyzed with this grip control. And I remember just thinking to myself, I wonder what would happen if just I forgot everything I know and I just decide I'm just not going to let this guy grip me. <laughs> and, and so I kind of did that. I just thought, okay, forget all of the techniques, forget all of the things I've tried to memorize over the years. I have one goal today on the mat, and that is I will not let this guy grip me. That's it. If he tries to grip me, I'm going to invert the grips. I'm going to pivot the grips. I'm going to grab onto something. That is my only goal. And I immediately got better at jujitsu overnight to the point where people were commenting on it and they didn't understand. <laughs> anyway, it was kind of weird because what I had actually done was intentionally abandoned everything I had ever been taught and replaced it with this tremendously simple idea. And it was quite depressing that that actually was more productive for me than all of the stuff my instructors had tried to drill into my head over the years. And I think that's kind of similar to what you've talked about, which is this idea that techniques are useful. Yes, they have a place, but I know that one of your philosophies is prioritizing concepts over those techniques. And I'd love to dig into that mindset a little bit more and to hear how you engage this and how you teach people with a concept-based approach. Absolutely. So it kind of, it all came by accident. Again, I was unlucky in that, you know, I lost my coaches very early on into my grappling career. And so I made, I had six months of, of grappling experience. We didn't have any such thing as a, you know, stand up in guard, Delaheva, single leg X, all those things didn't exist. We both stood up and we went back to wrestling and we had maybe three guards on the floor. We had 
close guard, half guard, and butterfly guard. Net cranks and can openers were the main method of passing guard. As they should be. As they should be. And heel hooks were, that's just another, but it wasn't like normal heel hooks, like the, the in-depth kind of Cummings, Danaher, 10th Planet system. It was yeah, OG heel hooks. Yeah, the old, you know, kind of Ken Shamrock, I'm just going to twist your leg kind of style of heel hooking. And so that's that's pretty much all we had. So when the, the gym owner said to me, like, you know, Chris, you look after this. I was like, well, I don't know anything. It was like, just keep doing triangles forever. That's all everyone else does. I think that's pretty much his exact words to me. It was like, just keep doing triangles and lots of them. And I was like, okay, fine. And so that's when I went and bought some books and tried to learn some stuff. And then around about 2014, it was the... Nick Gregoriadis, Kit Dale, in the height of his popularity, DVD that came out, Conceptual Jiu-Jitsu. And hearing them talk about how they do their sweeps and how they do various things like defending on the bottom and stuff, I was kind of blown away that, wow, Jiu-Jitsu can actually be learned in a conceptual manner. It can actually, there's actually underlying principles behind everything. And that's kind of like when I started to really reevaluate how I, I saw this martial art. I was then picking up, I was like, why does this technique work? Why is the, where does the concept fit in with this? And I was adjusting my concepts based on what I was learning from different gyms and then trying to replicate or create new techniques in the gym via those concepts. And sometimes I'd come out with a technique that I uh, would then learn like a year later in an actual gym. I was like, oh, I already do this, but I kind of came up with it oddly. It hasn't often happened often, but it still made me curious. And then once I met Preet, that was kind of the, the, the final nail in this whole thing is that it was when he first talked about the grilled chicken. So uh, I think he only uses grilled chicken in regards to the open guard posture. But hearing him explain that it's actually based on, it's, it's the rotisserie chicken, except in Estonian, they don't have the word rotisserie. Of this posture, in, no matter how you rotate it, it's the exact same posture. That was it. I was like, right, jujitsu is just concepts. And I then threw out pretty much every normal way of learning jujitsu that I'd, I'd done. So we'll pay for seminars, et cetera, of this kind of posture or position, setup, finish. I then threw that kind of whole mindset out. It didn't make any sense to me anymore. And Preet then kind of ruined the gym in a way, is that it made it very difficult to then book any other seminars. I mean, we, we had quite a few black belts come through our doors over time to try and add their ideas into the gym. We've had Oliver Tarza, um, we've had guys who fought in the ADCC, UK black belts. But it was always a case of learning position, setup, finish. And that's just how we thought jujitsu was. And then for Preet to come in and do a heavy, you know, 16-hour weekends of concepts, punctuated with examples of our it was like, right, damn, we've done this entirely wrong. And so and then, you know, I try and book new other seminars and people were like, it doesn't match how we learn jiu-jitsu. There's no point learning this. I think the final one we did was Charles Harriet, which was who was a another one of the Globetrotters black belts. He was coming through the UK, so I said, oh, would, you, would you mind calling through my gym? I just had to say to him prior, like, <laughs> I don't know if he got offended with this, but we're still friends. As I said, don't teach how you normally teach. The guys won't like it. Like They won't enjoy it. They won't get as much out of it. Teach on the end. Teach us the details of why you do what you do. But... Other than that, like don't don't just do like you know hit from here in half guard. I'll, I'll catch the arm this way and then go for a dart. Like they won't. 
it won't work. It won't, it won't help these guys at all. And he was like, oh, I'm going to have to really, really reevaluate how I actually do this seminar then. <laughs> Which is actually kind of funny. Is that, you know, I would say I'm very, very good friends with Charles and we've, you know, we've toured around the US together. Is that he said, uh, why is it your gym does more preach stuff than preach gym? I was like, huh. He goes, yeah, everyone in your gym just like does this defensive stuff. He says, most of the roles I've had in preach gym don't use it. Uh, there's also some very, very good people in preach gym that do use it, but why is it m- maybe half them don't? It's like, oh, that's interesting. I have no idea. I have figured it out since and kind of nicknamed it the Preet Paradox, <laughs> which is, uh, I laughed, I laughed with Preet about this in, the, in Arizona recently, as I said that, you know, I can't get a seminar in the UK, or at least maybe in like 150 mile radius of my gym. Just like Preet can't do any seminars in Estonia. So no matter how big he's getting, how much he's blowing up, he doesn't do a single seminar in Estonia. And I always say it's because they know you. They, they know, they've, they've grown up with you. So it's just, oh, it's just pre, oh, it's just Chris. But when you go abroad, it's, oh, it's mysterious. Like, who's this, you know, wise Eastern Estonian fellow? <laughs> like, I'm going to listen to what he says. And so, you know, to us, he was, you know, this, this weird Soviet-esque, emotionless guy. And so we kind of took in everything he said. Yeah, in his gym, so it's just pre, and the guy from kind of ignores him, which I think is hilarious. Um, but I guess it means that we both have to travel far and wide for people to actually listen to us and actually care about what we say about jujitsu. Well, I have a theory about why it might be the case that so many of Preet's people don't parrot his instructions to the letter. And I think it might just be related to one of the key differences between teaching with a technique-based approach versus teaching with a concept-based approach. If you really think about what you're asking your students to do, if you're teaching them a technique-based approach, you're basically asking them to just copy everything you do exactly. Whereas if you're teaching a concept-based approach, what you're doing is you're giving people ideas and systems and you're letting them self-express on top of that. So I think you actually wind up with a lot of variability if you do that and a lot more creativity. The example I give a lot of the time when I talk about this is I liken this to public speaking. If you ever do public speaking and your idea for prep is I'm going to write this exact speech word for word, I'm going to memorize the speech exactly, and I'm just going to go up and just regurgitate it, it's probably not going to go over well. There's going to be a variety of problems. You're going to come across as robotic. And moreover, if you forget something or if something throws you off your game, like there's a distraction or an interruption, it can be very, very hard to get your mind back on track into the direction that you wanted it to be. Whereas if you're preparing a speech and you've just got some key talking points in your head and you freestyle around those, it's a lot easier to be nimble and to adapt based on the reaction of your audience, based on whether you make a mistake in your speaking. It gives you more flexibility. And I liken concept-based teaching to the same idea where if your instructor comes in and their teaching style is, okay, here's how you play spider guard. 15 steps to this thing. Everyone just copy me exactly. Okay. If he puts his hand here, 15 steps to the counter, copy this exactly. If that's your teaching style, you're basically creating clones of yourself or of whatever you're trying to teach. So it shouldn't be surprising if everyone just comes out fitting into the same mold as you. Whereas if you're basing your instruction on concepts, you're giving people a foundation, but you're letting them self-express on top of that. So I think probably there's a good chance you're going to wind up with people who have games that are totally different 
from your own if you're a concept-based teacher. So that might be why at concept-oriented gyms, there's so much variability in terms of the student gains. That would just be a, a guess in terms of why I think that might be something that could happen. Possibly. Although, like I say, speaking to Charles and, and doing a little bit of rolling at Preach Gym as well, is some of them don't even use the defensive postures. Like They use normal jiu-jitsu. Like, you know, I completely understand the, the whole idea of variability, but and my gym especially has a, a lot of variability due to, you know, I say the, the concept heavy approach. But for some of them to like use an open turtle and for some of them to use kind of traditional side control framing, that was like, that's nowhere in Preach's system. That's like, that's, that's complete abandonment of the concept right there of hiding your armpits. Like, why is this door wide open? Mm-hmm. And so, it was it was curious, but again, like you know, it's interesting in that you know he doesn't well to my knowledge have much to do in Estonia, and I think especially with with how his his style has changed over the years, so, you know, probably from a more traditional jujitsu kind of approach, maybe bringing in new ideas, maybe it's hard for people to kind of get on board of it because it's just like a, a rambling black belt, you know, coming up with new kind of crazy ideas he's writing on a whiteboard and people can maybe get stuck in their ways. Yeah. It's just a, a, a curious observation because I have rolled a bit in preach gym as well. And it was, it was odd to watch some of them not use any of this stuff and, and me to be completely all in on it. I think there comes a point where you have to vary from your instructor and grow off onto your own. My instructor is heavy into a lot of gi based guards like spider guard and collar and sleeve and lapel stuff. I never play any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I value my fingers way too much. I hate that stuff. I ne- <laughs> like if I am, if I am playing guard, the last thing I want to do is tie my fingers up in your sleeves. I never do it almost as a matter of principle. And it's just interesting because that is a very different approach from what my own instructor teaches on the regular. So I think that much like how teenagers grow up and they eventually deviate from their parents and they rebel, I think it's normal once you get to brown belt and black belt to start rebelling from your instructor and forging off your onto your own path. So maybe that's just part of the natural development of, well, really anything to do with a mentor-student relationship. Just at some point, the student gets creative and they start breaking off from the pack and doing their own thing. In Japanese, they have a concept for that. They call it shuhari. Basically, the process of the beginner deviating from the master and eventually adding their own contributions to the sport. So maybe not the craziest thing in the world. I'd like to dig into your gym though. I'd like to understand how you guys teach on the ground. So you've talked about how you use a concept oriented approach. One of the concepts that you've talked about so far is the importance of hiding your your elbows and access to your armpits. Again, some, something that for myself, I also didn't realize until way later in the game, the importance of doing that. But I'd also like to maybe dig into how you teach, what methods you use, and if there's any other critical concepts that you always make sure that you bring up with your students. Absolutely. So. The whole defensive postures and this whole idea of, uh, I mean, <laughs> it winds up pre no end in that the most well-known video on his system wasn't done by him. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> still, I still laugh at it. And uh, I think he's starting to see the funny side of it now, especially because uh, Raul, one of the, the other people learning under Preet in, in the Netherlands, originally came out and did that amazing competition where you kind of showed this this whole system in practice. And I think that's got now more views than anything Preet's done as well. Just to back up the truck here for people who don't know what we're talking about, one of 
Preet's constant ongoing battles in trying to carry over his platform is convincing people that it's a good idea. And one of the main areas of feedback that he often gets is that there just isn't enough high-level competition footage of people using these techniques, which to some extent you would expect because it's it's relatively new and novel. So this dude named Raul went off and basically consistently pulled turtle and heel hooked a bunch of people in competition. And you can watch the video of him doing this. So Preet and Christian Graugart from BJJ Globetrotters posted this video so that people could have some idea of what this actually looks like in a realistic training environment. And of course, the pushback on that was also hilarious, <laughs> which basically came down to people just saying that it only worked because Raul is probably, possibly much better than a lot of his opponents, which is a very interesting argument for why something doesn't work. I mean, I I generally agree that there's insufficient proof that Preet stuff works in competition. It is just too new and too niche at this point. But I've never heard anyone say Gordon Ryan's back control should be disregarded because he's just so much better than his opponents. That doesn't make any sense, right? It's a weird thing to say. The fact that he's better means you should probably consider listening to him. But anyway, that is the backstory here is that, it, man, if you want to see that video, I don't even know how you would Google it, but Preet and Christian probably have it posted somewhere. If you you want to see someone heel hook a bunch of people from turtle there is video proof that that can be done yeah i think if you were to have like some sort of rageometer just point that in the direction of the internet and i think you'll eventually found that that video because it seems to be attracting a lot of ire from the traditional jiu-jitsu community so yeah just just wherever the wherever the, the the anger currently is on the internet i'm pretty sure that's that video but my the video i i kind of got more well known for was the uh or this kind of system is i, I did a class at, at preach gym oddly enough in Estonia a couple of years ago called How to Defend Everything. And that kind of blew up more than I ever expected. I wish I'd actually planned ahead for that in that class and actually had an idea of what the hell I was teaching. But the basic basic idea of the whole thing was this. You can learn normal jujitsu. You can learn the, the he does X, I do Y kind of style that, you know, if someone moves their knee here, you do this. They move their leg here, you do this. And if they put their hand here, like how you like, imagine you learn side control defense. Like if their arm's on this side of your head, if their weight's on under the arm, it's this hip down, that hip down, which is fine. And But is there like a, a combat sports-esque idea underpinning jujitsu i mean boxing you you cover your chin in wrestling you you have a low posture and your elbows in we didn't really have that in jujitsu these whole defensive postures the way i saw them was you know you keep your arms in which again isn't new i went to a ryan hall seminar about 10 years ago when it was the adcc's in the uk and he talked about this idea of all control postures in jujitsu are who is inhabiting the space between the other person's knees and elbows. Yeah. And the, the main method of stopping it is to reconnect your knees and elbows. And then flash forward seven years to, to meeting pre and he's now saying, yeah, to stop bad things happening to you, don't let them in between your knees and elbows. And so then seeing all these postures, understand that it's a rotisserie chicken is I then did this class on keeping your elbows and knees together until you want to fight out like a boxer would, as in you, you cover and then you, come out to attack when it's safe to do so. And when it's not safe to do so, you return because you know that by exiting the, the structure, the defensive posture, you are leaving yourself exposed, which then made way more sense to me to kind of like get that into beginner's heads as soon as they kind of joined the gym is that we, we all kind of remember our, our first foray into jujitsu where, you know, we flail our arms about and we got arm knocked a bunch by savage, horrible upper white belts and blue belts. And we get told to keep our arms in, but we never get any context for that. It's like, why am I keeping my arms in? What am I actually supposed to be hiding? And so to then 
have a way of explaining to brand new beginners, right, day one, tie your goddamn elbow to your legs. Like, that's it. And I don't care if you don't win, just do this. Just keep that tied up and you'll be fine. And have them ball up and then have me and other brand belts attack them and then they survive. Yeah. You know, that gives like a, a brilliant start to, all right, actually, I can actually survive this horrible sport. I'm not going to get murdered. And so that and then made me think, right, there's a better ways of explaining all of jujitsu this way. As in, we've just solved the not getting murdered problem. How do I explain guard? And then I sat down and wrote basically a, took all the different concepts I have rattling around in my head and created a beginner's program of why does guard exist? What are the kind of underlying principles of guard? And for example, my current thoughts on that are the five main control points of wrestling that you don't let anyone have are behind your head, in your armpits, and behind your knees slash under your hips. So single legs, double legs, over-unders, wizards, double-unders, snap-downs, head control. It's, it's all those five points people are looking for. And you know the reason we have that the traditional kind of posture of wrestling of keeping your chin up, keeping your arms tied and keeping a low, low posture is to stop people getting into those places. Like a sprawl is very much you've, you've messed up and they have that place on you. You have to get them out of that place. You, you, your first wrestling class is how to pummel. So someone's in your armpits and you pummel into their armpits. Um, guard is no different as in the five main control points still apply. So apart from like maybe some of the gi guards, which, you know, can seem a bit odd, especially spider guard, but yeah, it's control behind your head, control in the space up between your, your hips and armpits and the control behind your legs. And all guard passing, if it's pressure, speed, whatever, has always been about get them out of those places first and then climb into the space between their knees and armpits. So instead of then teaching a multitude of passes to a multitude of different guards, which again, this is kind of Rolodex way of learning jujitsu of you have to pull out a certain technique card for all the different circumstances that happen. I love that term, the Rolodex way of teaching jujitsu. That's such a perfect way of <laughs> describing the old school approach. Yeah, you have this, you have an infinite number of questions, and then you have to create this infinite number of answers, which then creates this whole problem of what if jujitsu? Because, you know, we've, we've both kind of been in that kind of situation where, like, you have like a, yeah, maybe a seminar or something and, and the, the coach will teach something You're like, Oh, what if he does this? Ah, then you have to do this, this, and this. Yeah. Ah, but he does that to me. Oh, you have to do this. It's like, you don't have to memorize all these different circumstances that could happen in, in what is essentially chaos. Is there a way of doing it better? Is there something that explains like all these different ways that guard passing exists? And one of the, again, it's, it's nice having access to such great coaches via globe trials. It's that Christian did a class called G spot passing. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, around about 2016. I, I'm not sure that I am going to endorse this method of guard passing, but why don't you tell me what it means? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was very invasive. So he did a class at one of the Globetrotters camps. I think it was in Leuven, Belgium, uh, called G-Spot Passing, aka the guard spot. And the guard spot is, is basically about one centimeter past north of your kneecaps. And he said there isn't a single guard pass that doesn't involve at some point touching that space north of someone's kneecaps. So mm -hmm. knee slices, toriandos, over-unders, double-unders, you always have to touch that kind of that space. And you know, the main crux of the class was making sure that you get to that space and you, you keep it, as in you get ahead of someone's knees and it becomes yours, which again falls into this whole idea of defending the space between your knees and armpits. So for him to then say, you know, 
doesn't matter if you're, you're upright doing a Toriando or an X-Pass or you're on the floor doing pressure passing, you always have to inhabit that space. So it then became, right, so there's a concept that explains guard of don't let them in the space behind your legs, behind your head, or in your armpits. It was actually a seminar with a, a one of Braulio's black belts, Chu Kwong Man, over in, in Birmingham. And he, he said, you know, when you approach someone's guard, this is, again, pre-preet. When you approach someone's guard, glue your heel to your butthole. And that'll stop stuff like half guard and dead heaver and stuff like that. It's like, so it's stuff that all these people have been saying to me over years of meeting them. And then it was just kind of marrying all these ideas together. It's like, right, okay, so all these different coaches have said, don't let anyone in between your knees and armpits. Don't let anyone behind your knees. Don't let anyone behind your head. And try and get ahead of their knees and climb into the space between their knees and armpits. Well, there's an easy concept that I can explain to a beginner that no matter what happens, if they're in that space, you need to get them out. And if they expose the space between your, their knees and armpits, climb into theirs. And then they can go learn on YouTube and Fanatics and, and all those different places of, right, actually, that's why this guard exists. This is why this pass exists. Instead of seeing, I mean, there's a brilliant video by Henzo, which I always kind of reference when I teach like a private on this or something. And he's doing like a, a closed guard pass. And he's talking about, you know, holding the gear a certain way and, and making sure that you put your hands certain ways so that the, like a triangle doesn't happen to you or an arm bar. But he doesn't really go into much detail on the fact that he pushes the person out of his armpits, then puts his hand on the person's hip and then climbs into it. Yeah, that's the crux of what a guard pass is. And it's very easy to get sucked into kind of, you know, I remember doing those classes where I was spent, you know, as a white belt, I was getting too sucked into, I have to hold the gi this way. It doesn't work if I'm not one inch up here, two inches down here. It's like, that wasn't the important part. I, was, I, was, I wasn't seeing the wood for the trees kind of thing. And I don't want that to happen to my students. And it's maybe, you know, one of the greatest motivators for, for doing jujitsu this way is that I don't want it to be a case of, if I teach you how I was taught, eventually you'll become like me because that'll take you 13 years. If I teach you what I do now, how I understand jujitsu, I want you to get here in two years, three years. And so how do I explain what I do and why I do it? And that stuff like that guard method makes more sense. And I brought this uh, idea into my beginner course and I had people invent Delahiva because they took one of their four limbs and they were trying to control behind someone's knee. They invented half guard. And I was like, perfect. It works. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring this up because one of my favorite things about a concept approach is it's so easy to see the parallels between what different instructors are telling you if you think in terms of concepts. If you evaluate everything in terms of techniques, then jujitsu can be totally overwhelming because it feels like it's impossible to get a straight answer from people in terms of what to do. You'll go to some instructors and they might be playing a very wrestling heavy game or a very defensive shell game. And then you're going to have other people tying people up in their pajamas and doing all sorts of weird inversions. And you look at all of this and it's hard to see a single narrative thread that ties the whole art together. And that can be super confusing for new people. But from a concept approach, Everything that you just said is completely in line with stuff that you would hear us talk about on the show, stuff that you would hear Rob Bernacki talk about. Any kind of concept platform allows you to bring together the things that are universally true in jujitsu or at least universally predictable. And then, like you said, you can build and develop your own things on top of that. I mean, you talked about this example of how really there's only five targets on the body. We've talked about the exact same thing. We've talked about how... 
really in jujitsu, what you're fundamentally trying to do is get lever control on your opponents and not let them get lever control on you. That's one of the most important ideas that a new person needs to understand. And if you can get that into someone's head, <laughs> grab and control one of their levers, meaning one of their legs, one of their arms or their head, and don't let them do that to you you're already in pretty good shape. You also talked about the importance of maintaining an elbow-knee connection to prevent people from getting access to your your ribs because you don't want them to split your arms and legs. That's really the fundamental of why you play guard the way that you do. I mean, to an untrained person, the difference between guard and mount doesn't look that different. But we know in jiu-jitsu that, that it's very different because in one of those situations, you have four weapons to fight with. And in the other one, you only have two. That's a huge, huge difference if you're defending from the bottom. And really the only difference between mount and guard is an elbow knee connection in a lot of cases. Your ability to close that space to your hip. That's the only real difference between guard and mount at the end of the day. So I find it interesting that we're ultimately talking about the same things. But like you said, if you understand those concepts, you can reinvent a lot of jujitsu from the ground up because the concepts are the root that ties everything together. So that's one of the reasons why I always encourage people to think conceptually. And it's also just helpful to understand why, why you do these things that we do. I was never really taught why we do these things. I was taught how in the beginning I was taught what, you know, how you play guard, but I didn't quite understand why you would do this. And once you start understanding why these positions make sense, then you have a better way to freestyle. You don't have to remember the specifics of every single place to put your hand or your foot. If you understand the why, then like you said, you know that when someone is trying to pass your guard, you need to retract everything. You don't want to give them a lever. You don't want to let them break your elbow knee connection. So much like in boxing, you've got a defensive stance that is your default. In jujitsu, you should also have a default where it is not easy for someone to get lever control on you. So that really is the one thing that I hope people understand. If they get nothing else out of this conversation is some of these very basic ideas, they are the universal underpinning of everything else that you do. And you brought up the differences that can happen when the gi is in play, because instead of just grabbing an arm or a leg, you might be tying a sailor knot around your opponent's body with their lapel. But the reality is that even in those situations, you're still just getting lever control. It's just a different way of doing it. Instead of grabbing someone's leg, I might wrap their lapel around their leg. Or instead of grabbing someone's arm, I might grab their sleeve. And I can do indirect proxy control over those things. But it's the same fundamental idea. I'm trying to control their arms, their legs, their head. That's basically jujitsu in a nutshell. Exactly. Actually, an interesting thing when it comes to the gi is that I've got a good friend who trains in Germany with, I think he does quite a lot of the German judo Olympic team. And he was talking about the, the positioning of where he grabs on the gi is actually directly in line with the armpit. So when he grabs the, the, the collar and he said, because it's the tightest part of the gi and gives me control of the armpit. I was like, God damn, these guys are doing it as well. It was actually as well, even again, tying all these fantastic ideas together is that when Keenan came out of Wormguard, what, eight years ago now, he did, it at, he did a seminar on it at the Globetrotters camp in Copenhagen. He just spent three hours explaining it. And, and maybe it was like a passing throwaway comment that he made was that the reason why he was wrapping the gi around the foot is because it tightens around the back and goes to the opposite armpit. Like he said, it was an extension of my hand that where I grab the gi here, it goes, you imagine this line that follows all the way around the back to the shoulder blades and then reaches into their opposing armpit. I was like, and then when I suddenly started to put all these different things together and have these revelations, it was like, these people have been saying these exact same things for years to me, all these different black belts. And 
but I'd never clicked that, you know, it's, it's this critical. And again, it's you say this whole idea of understand the concepts and, and being able to interpret why things work is what's the path for worm guard is to get them push their foot out of your armpit, out of the wormhole into between your legs and then drive your knee, which has been delahevered into the back of their knee, which then strips them out of the back of your knee, which again is the concept in action. So that's what you kind of, you know, when, when this guard came out and I remember people being stumped by it, then people started to destroy it. And that's the way they were destroying it. It was like, again, this the concept in action. And so it was, it was moments like that where I had these ideas of why jujitsu works the way it does. And then if I see it in action and a problem is created that then is fixed and the concept works to actually create that fix, it was like, right, so we're on the right track. And if it wasn't, right, then I have to understand the the concept better why did it work this time or doesn't it need to be adjusted if that makes sense yeah it, it totally does i think another thing about concept approach is if you understand why things are happening it's easier to react to situations you haven't seen before um, like i talked about in the public speaking example if you get thrown off of your script then it can totally screw you up and that's why word for word memorization of a public speech is usually not that best approach it's the same thing in jujitsu if your entire game is based on memorizing techniques then all it takes to defeat you is for someone to throw a technique at you that you haven't seen before if you've never seen worm guard before and you don't understand the concepts then yeah someone just needs to approach you with that and having not seen it before you won't know what to do whereas if you understand the concepts you can often wing it i've had this happen i remember when people started doing this lapel stuff to me i certainly wasn't fluent in it and it surprised me that people were trying to grab my lapels and tie them around me but i remember thinking at the time like okay i don't know what this person is ultimately intending to do from a technique standpoint <laughs> i see they're grabbing my lapel and they're trying to tie it around my leg in some funny way i don't quite understand that but what I do know is that he's trying to control my leg. And I do know that he's trying to coil his whole body around my leg. And I do know that if I don't let him do that, then whatever he's trying to do isn't going to work. So like you talked about people inventing existing guards that they didn't even necessarily know because they understood the concept so they could do that. I found that when people try playing more modern or innovative games against me, I'm not going to say it's a, a silver bullet, but I find it easier to react in the moment to these unexpected things because I understand the mechanics of what they're trying to do. So that's another reason why this stuff is important is because if someone starts playing new and innovative and novel stuff against you, you'll be better equipped to deal with that. Exactly. But also from, from a coach's perspective, I think it's quite critical to, to maybe have this conceptual approach to why you do what you do is that I want to be the best I can for my students. I want them to get as, as better than me. And unfortunately, they're not all six foot three and 89 kilos. Life would be so much easier at that point. I remember you know, back when I had more of a technical approach to jujitsu, I'd be asked questions on like, you know, from like maybe a five foot four students, I can't hold the leg this way. And then they'd go to other black belts and ask them that question. And that black belt was saying, I don't know. I, I don't know how you're supposed, you're supposed to hold the leg this way. Just don't do it. And that irked me because it's like, well, I've failed this student. We failed this student. I, we just literally said to him, we don't know because we're not you. Go figure it out and give them no tools to actually then go figure it out. And I want to be able to understand why the technique works because then if I can get that idea over to them on why everything works and not get bogged down in technical details. They can then find their own way of doing it. And one of the, the main ways I'm doing that these days is 
especially with joint locks. So anytime I teach a technique, I have to obviously punctuate it with examples of it in action sometimes, like especially to, to more mid to higher level guys. Like, okay, this is, this is a concept in action examples instead of rote copy what I'm doing. Cause if I just talk at them, they've got no idea. I have to paint pictures. But when it comes to joint locks is I love the idea of working backwards on them in the leg locks are a prime example is that people will grab something and just rip it and they'll, you know, go just start cranking and a tap will happen. But you say to them, like, what are you destroying? And it's amazing how many times people go for heel hooks and they're on breaking the heel. No, you're not. <laughs> like that is very much not what is happening here. And so I like this idea of, of working backwards of, right, paint your target first, understand what you're actually destroying. Like be told, right, you're destroying this ligament, this part of the knee, this part of the ankle. And then that's, that's very definitive. And then work one step backwards from that. It's a minor control as in, I, I like to refer to them as, uh, you know, when you control the core and the torso, it's a major control. So side control, mount, back control, etc. When you move on to a limb, arm bars, etc. It's, it's minor control because you're wrapping your entire body just around that one limb. Usually when it comes to joint locks, again, kind of leaning on Nick Gregoriadis at this point, he said it's, you know, control above and below the one you want. So if I want to go for an arm bar, I need to control the shoulder and the wrist. If I want to go for a ankle lock, I need to control the foot and the knee. But that then becomes very personal as, you know, I'm, I say six foot three, 195 pounds, whatever it is how I hold the leg is going to be very different to someone who is five foot four and 70 kilos. So I did a seminar last year alongside Imanari and he did an ankle lock and Imanari isn't a tall dude and how he holds his ankle lock is very different to how I'd hold it. He, he wraps his legs just completely around the other person's knee. Again, he's isolating the ankle. He's like, this is what's being destroyed. So he controls the foot and controls the knee, but it's personal to him. And his body type, I couldn't use that because I'm six foot three and I couldn't fold myself up enough to get the knee the same way he does. But I know why he's doing it. And so then being able to apply these, give that kind of concept to the student and say, look, you want to control above and below the one you want. So it's easy to do what you, you know, stuff with your hands because we've got great dexterity and control over them. So how you hold onto the foot and the wrist isn't that important because you've got great control with your your hands. But if you try and control then the closest joint to them, the, the, the more core joints, the, the one that's closer to their body, you're doing it with the part of your body that you have the least control over. And it's around one of the joints closest to their core, which they have the most kind of control over because, you know, on a lever it's control is the closest to the, the, the fulcrum. And so that's going to take the, the greatest amount of understanding for you, but that's very personal and how you grip that. And working then backwards from that is they then explore their body, explore and get that feedback off their, off their partner, which I don't believe in doing reps. Like, you know, here's five minutes on the timer, do 10 reps each or whatever, because it's all arbitrary. Um, I'd rather you do it once and fully deep dive into why you're doing it and have along that is required. I mean, one of my also my, my favorite ways of, of doing drills is reverse drilling, where if it's your turn to drill, you coach the other person through it. So you, you know, you say to them, right, I want you to be a blank slate, have no, prior ideas on what you're supposed to be doing and do exactly everything I say. Because one of the greatest ironies in jujitsu is we never know our own pressure. We never know what it feels like to be us and what we do to people. We never know what our side control feels like. We just hear screams. No, I do. <laughs> what are you doing to people in side control if you're making them <laughs> scream? 
there was a <laughs> dude. There was a fight I had in Israel a couple of years ago where I tapped the dude with side control pressure, and everyone watching was like, "What the hell did he tap to?" I was like, "Ah, black belt magic." <laughs> so, but I never know what that feels like, and and so I like this idea of you know asking someone else to do the technique and say, "Right, grab the foot this way, grab the arm this way," or "What if you do it this way?" Ah, that that go that's not as tight. What if you do it this way? Oh, that's much tighter. Because then at least I'm getting to understand how I'm supposed to, how I'm holding on to someone. Otherwise, we have this, I do the technique, you tap, you do the technique, I tap. And we both don't know what the hell actually we're doing. So I asked him to reverse drill. I asked him to investigate. I asked him to, to play around. And I don't like this idea of, of it's a group and on one side, students and black belt on the other side. It's almost like I want everyone to sit around in a circle. We get a problem, such as how do you want to hold on to the knee? Then when we all go off and we play and investigate and then we all come back together and go right what do we all figure out yeah and then people will share different ways they're holding on to the leg and and it doesn't matter if someone's a, a you know three-month white belt up to a purple belt like i want everyone to give different ideas because we have all these different body types and, and experiences in the pot and then we go away again we add those kind of results into into our training into you know and investigate further and so it's kind of then finalized you know the the hold that suits us the best personally we then take another step back and we look at context like why where would that appear from as in is it a top control that i can work into is it say if it was like an inside outside principle when it comes to guard as in is it a leg locking position when it comes to being in between someone's legs in guard etc so you know the end product you know the control that allows you to get the end product you know the context that allows you to get there and then in the middle is just hand fighting and that then becomes almost like pad work in boxing so if it's if someone's unsure, more unsure and more new, it, you know, almost like the pads are held very still and they, you know, they do basic just hunting into that position. But then the more fluent they are knowing where they want to be, the hand, right, the hand fighting increases. So that it becomes more like sparring with a designated winner, AKA drilling. Mm-hmm. And they can then build their sensitivity to getting into those points instead of this, again, traditional position, setup, submission. Because the way I liken it to is that imagine a room filled with smoke and you're shining a laser pen through it and just hitting a certain number of particles that is a setup that you're normally taught in jiu-jitsu in all this chaos this was once a circumstance where all these particles aligned and i got this technique go learn it and then you wait inspiring for those particles to realign before you can do that technique again and it's it may never come yep there there are techniques i have been taught that in my, what year is it? 2021. In my 13 years of training jujitsu, like there are techniques that instructors have made me drill and have, have taught me. And I have never in 13 years of jujitsu encountered the situation where it would make sense to do that technique. Like it's exactly. the exact same thing you're bringing up. You know, you're a lot of the very specific situations require the stars to align in a certain way that may never happen. So why are we teaching people this? Exactly. But if you can build that kind of sensitivity where someone is being a good partner and being a good coach to you and giving you stuff to work for and moving in a sparring like manner that you can then manufacture the transition from the major control to the minor control, because then you can build in the defensive postures because say if you're you're hunting for like an an arm bar from top control and you're doing it from like a guard passing situation, uh, you know, when you you can do it quite compliantly, where they have to pass the guard and hunt for the armpit to then swing to the minor control of controlling the shoulder and the wrist, or you can make it where someone's now playing quite good 
grilled chicken, playing quite good defensive postures, and you've got to hunt that gap on them. But if you don't have that kind of conversation between the partners of of what you want and what you're hunting for, and and you know. Uh, increase intensity or decrease intensity. We may as well just go back to the pandemic and just do what we're doing with grappling dummies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. And I, I again, I like this idea of we start from the end, understand why we're doing what we're doing, and the control that suits us personally. And then the the, the greatest part of it all is hand fighting. And uh, one of the my favorite ways of explaining it currently is this whole idea that in wrestling there's a grip that's banned, where if you interlock fingers, it has to be broken up. Because it kills grappling. Because if our fingers are interlocked, we can't use our hands, which means you can't wrestle. Which means there's a pinnacle of hand fighting so effective that it has to be banned because it kills the entire sport. <laughs> and so if we're not aspiring for that level, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. And so if that is the most critical part of all jiu-jitsu, I mean, what techniques does a white belt know that a black belt doesn't or vice versa? It's all the same. The only thing that kind of really changes is their effectiveness of getting there and their sensitivity to it. And so I, I prefer this idea of I want to spend the longest amount of time in that, like work on your hand fighting. You know what you want. You know what's going to give you the reaction you want. Now hand fight your way to it and have good partners that are going to ramp up the training to that point. Because then, again, it was one of those kind of frustrating parts as a, as a white belt coach is how do I teach more advanced guys and beginners at the same class? I can't. Like, mm-hmm. how am I going to keep everyone interested? And it was horrible. I, I hated that kind of period, but now it's kind of like I can give the same drill to a white belt that I can give to a purple belt because they can explore different avenues they'd hunt from as in different minor controls from those contexts that then suits them personally. There's two things I want to unpack there that you brought up, which I, I think are critical. One of them is when you're teaching people techniques, it's very easy for people to get caught up in the minutiae and feel like if they can't do it the exactly the way that they've been taught, that they must be doing it wrong. I had this problem for years. You brought up that awesome example with Imanari and how his foot placement was different from what you would expect, but you understood why he would do it that way, even if it didn't make sense for you. And that's a fundamental issue with a lot of technique-based mimicry teaching approaches where you're just supposed to copy and paste what the instructor is doing. We all have different body dimensions. Uh, We all have different limitations. And beyond that, we also have different goals and game plans. And all of this matters. An example that I talk about a lot is one of the most common areas that this comes up is whether when you're arm barring someone, you should cross your ankles or not. Now, when I started jujitsu, I was taught never, ever, 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 ever cross your ankles when you're trying to arm bar someone. That's what I was taught. I was taught that you pinch your heels in, but you never cross them. And for a long time, I thought, well, that's, you know, okay, sure. But it doesn't quite feel right sometimes when I do that, but that's what professor says. So I guess I'll do that. But then I noticed that there's a lot of other people, particularly in MMA who advocate and say, always, 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 always cross your ankles. So I'm hearing the opposite now. And I'm quite confused by this whole thing. Uh, Just a word to the wise, by the way, if someone ever tells you always do something or never do something, be very critical of that because there's not a lot of absolutes in the world. So what I've kind of come to the conclusion of is, look, what are you trying to achieve when you do this stuff, when you armbar someone? Really, the reason why you're doing this is twofold. Number one, you want to hide your feet so they can't grab your foot and disentangle themselves from the armbar. And number two, you're trying to pinch in on the far side and create a wedge because that immobilizes their shoulder. And if they can't move their far shoulder, they can't rotate. And if they can't rotate, they can't get out. 
That's it. Whether you pinch your ankles or cross your ankles is irrelevant. It's going to come down to, based on you and based on your opponent, what feels most comfortable and effective in the moment. I personally find when I'm fighting someone who is my own size, I like to cross my ankles when I'm armbarring them. However, if I'm fighting someone who's gigantic, I find if I try to cross my ankles just due to the body dimensions, I can't get a strong cross and it feels like I don't have a lot of force. So for me, the rule that I like to use is, okay, if I'm fighting someone roughly my own size, I'll cross my ankles. If it's someone bigger, I'll pinch. That's basically what I do. And that's a good example of how this thing can be very, very individualized. I love how you talked about how jujitsu is sort of asymmetric. You can never feel your own pressure. You can never feel what it feels like when you do something to someone else. So what you think makes sense might not always be the case if someone else does it. You know, there's a lot of great examples of this. I mean, there's a lot of submissions like triangle chokes. We often don't really bring up to our students that, look, some of these moves have body size dependencies. If you are trying to triangle someone and you physically cannot triangle your legs around them in such a way that it feels like you get leverage, you need to reconsider, right? There, there is no silver bullet. And there are situations where certain moves that might make sense for one person just don't make sense for someone else. And I, I think it's so important that we we bring up to our students that jujitsu is a very individual experience. And ultimately, you need to carve out for yourself the things that do and don't work. Uh, I mean, yes, it's possible that if you can't make something work, it's possible that's just because you don't know what you're doing and you need to practice more. But it's also very possible that maybe it's just not a good fit for what you're trying to achieve. And that's okay. No one knows everything. The other thing you brought up, which I thought was very important, was this idea of sort of the jujitsu equivalent of mitt work, which is great because we often don't have this when we teach people. We kind of have two speeds when it comes to teaching. There is repeat the technique that the instructor told you to do, and then there is full contact sparring. We don't have that in between where you're basically just working the motions and you're not actually really fighting. And it's so important to have that because I feel, for example, if you were to take a white belt and rather than trying to teach them a whole bunch of techniques, if you just taught them grip fighting and just gave them like a, basically the equivalent of a working the mitts drill where they're just grip fighting, they're not even trying to fight. It's just constant grip fighting, inverting the grip, breaking the grip, changing angles so the grip is useless. If you just give people that, they're going to be way better than if you ask them to memorize every variant of spider guard. Exactly. It kind of goes back into, again, like the reason I kind of brought my martial arts history at the beginning is that I came through in a traditional martial art where it was always technical answers to technical questions. It was kind of throw two punches, block, block, throw a strike, do a throw. And jujitsu isn't that. We're not a martial art. We, We train like one, but we want to be a combat sport. And we don't train like boxers. We don't train like wrestlers. Um, we don't train like judoka. We train like a traditional martial art. You know, I don't know if it's a reverence to, to different cultures on, on why we do things and we, you know, yes, sensei kind of approach, but we don't train like, like an actual fighting style. We don't give people flair to fully understand why they do what they do. And again, you, you kind of brought up in this whole idea that, you know, triangles only work on certain body types depending on what your body is and because of it being we expect to be able to do the technique we kind of get frustrated when it doesn't work and we think well you know why can't I get this triangle is a tri- it's almost like we're playing tekken or you know a playstation game where we you know we're bashing the buttons and we try and force a technique to work and we're upset that it doesn't work it's like well why isn't this te- work- technique working for me well it's just the, it wasn't the right time for it it wasn't the you know 
you're not understanding why this technique would exist and it'd be the right time to use it. A prime example is, especially with the explosion of leg locks, is that all these different coaches come out the woodwork with their different ways of holding like Ashi or Senkaku or whatever. But they're all massively different body types. So to them, their grip and how they hold the leg makes the most sense to them. But then, you know, I say I'm, I'm pretty tall. And if I go against someone who's got tree trunk legs, I find it dead easy to hold onto their leg. But if I go against someone who's got really scrawny legs, I can't get the same grip. But I know why that's, what, why that's happening is because the amount of space left because of the length of my legs has changed. So I need to now adjust what I'm doing to create the same outcome. I want to hold onto their knee, no matter what the cost, or I'll hold onto their hip, et cetera. But if I was just to say, right, this is a grip you need to use to hold onto the leg, and then someone who is a vastly different body type decides to go for it, they say, well, I can't, I can't do this. My legs aren't long enough, or they're too short, or there's too much space now. Especially, you know, it could be just that person they're training with for the day, as in they've got a, a new training partner who has got tree trunk legs or has got really scrawny legs. And they go, oh, my, my, my heel hook isn't working today. Well, yeah, because you're training with a completely different body type. You're trying to, you know, square peg in a round hole. You're not understanding why you're doing what you're doing. And again, so that comes back to that idea of, I don't want to fail my students. I want them to, to fully understand and be able to adapt in what is essentially chaos. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, that was a lot to cover. Before we wrap up here, was there anything else you wanted to bring up or get into? Any closing thoughts that we didn't discuss on the show so far? I'm pretty sure it has something rattling around. It kind of, yeah, it frustrates me in that jujitsu is taught like a martial art and we are taught how we were taught. I mean, Preet said it best to me, and that's, again, it made me reevaluate everything, is that he asks the, the thought experiment question of what would be the first guard you'd teach a beginner? And 80% of the time, people would say close guard. And you ask them why, and they have no idea. They say, oh, it's the most <laughs> simple guard. Is it? Rob Bernacki bans the teaching of closed guard until his students are comfortable with open guard because he feels learning closed guard as a base can be damaging. And I think he's right. Exactly. But it's, we teach how we were taught and you know, it's that kind of reverence to a professor, reverence to a sensei, et cetera, that we, we, we hold them on this pedestal that we then think we have to, to teach them how we were taught instead of investigating why we do what we do. And Pree said, you know, Close guard is the equivalent of throwing a punch, as in, and again, it all circles around to this idea of, of concept and the defensive postures, is that mm-hmm. whilst my elbows and my knees, are, or my knees are in my armpits, should I say, I am safe, nothing bad will happen to me. And if I'm showing that on day one, and then I'm surviving everyone, I've got proof that I am surviving because of these defensive postures. If I was to do close guard without a human being there, my knees are miles away from my armpits, which if my ankles unlock which i'm pretty sure as early white belts we all remember this feeling especially in competition where we'd get closed guard and we'd hold on for dear life we know that a second our arms our, our legs become unattached we get past so our knees are miles away so we become terrified of opening up our our ankles and it's because you've thrown a punch and you're leaving that punch out there and you know that the second it kind of misses you're going to get hit instead of knowing it is a punch knowing you've left the safety of a defensive posture to throw an attack if so, like if someone postures in my clothes guard, I just open it because there's no point in me having my my feet and my knees that far away from my body. Because if it goes wrong, it can go quite catastrophic. Instead of right, this punch is missed, retract, go back into the safety of the defensive postures, and then that makes you reevaluate how you're supposed to teach. And obviously, clothes guard, it'd be it's teaching the jab 
from the hand already being all the way out instead of starting at the chin. And that makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. And the problem in jujitsu is that we still do it. We, we still find ourselves teaching in this, this mindset of I'm going to teach almost without approaching the, the defensive mindset. And yeah, just to finish off with is that it's maybe where Preet gets most of the ire from, from everyone is that he is, when people spar, they, ex, you know, they want to see a win. And then they look at Preet, who's just lying there as a dead fish and think, wait, you're so, you're so stupid because you're not trying. It's just stalling. You're just lying on the floor. You're not winning. But that's not why he's doing what he's doing. He's doing it to investigate. He's a scientist. He's exploring the, this very niche part of jiu-jitsu that isn't looked at. This underpinning of everything. As in, you can counterpunch and do technical answers to technical questions down the line. You can drop your hands you can only drop your hands though in a boxing way if you know how to cover your chin in the first place, which that's where all this defensive stuff comes in. It's nothing new in jiu-jitsu. It's stuff we've always done. You know, shrimping is reconnecting your knees to your armpits to get someone out of that space. This isn't new. It's just a very exaggerated look at it by someone who is only doing that for investigative purposes. But it is the equivalent of everyone's learned to do jiu-jitsu via counter punches. And then someone's just walked in and said, look, you can cover your chin. This is why we cover our chin. And then everyone turns around and goes, this is madness. What the hell is this? And <laughs> you've got this guy who's basically just standing there covering his chin, dodging all punches and going, what the hell? You're not even trying to win. Well, yeah, because he's, he's working on covering his chin and understanding how to cover the chin better. And that's why, again, like, you know, how I, how I roll compared to Preet is very different is that I'm still rolling maybe more to, to win, but I'm also covering my chin. Yep. And so it doesn't look like I stole as much. Same as Raul. Like, that was a very exaggerated thing that he did where he was just spent ages blocking, you know, kind of weaving his head and blocking everyone's attacks and then punched them. <laughs> everyone was like, what the hell? Like, this guy wasn't even just trying to punch his way out of this. He was just like moving his head all the time. Yeah, I found that feedback interesting. People effectively said, well, Raul only had success when he switched from the turtle game, from the defense game to the offense game. And at that point, he's basically abandoning all of this defensive stuff. And no, it doesn't work that way. The defense is the foundation for your offense. If defense is not your foundation, then you're leaving massive gaping holes. It's like you said in a striking art, your defense is your default where, you know, your chin is down, your hands are up, your elbows are pinched. This is the default position. And you always want to make sure you're coming back to that. It should be the default. It's the same thing with when you're defending on the bottom, right? It's, it's not the defense and offense are opposites. It's the defense is the foundation for going on the offense. If you're looking at them as opposites and, and just like a light switch for you and you're either on one or the other, then what that probably means is when you're going on the offense, you're probably leaving gaping holes that can be exploited. And so you always want to be maintaining your defense, even when you're going on the attack, going on the attack should not result in you creating massive risk for yourself that can be exploited. Well, exactly. It's like 90% of boxing isn't punching. 90% of boxing boxing is covering your chin. Like, Everything would, you know, a punch takes a fraction of a second, yet the three seconds following is your hands in front of your chin. And hearing this whole idea of, you know, the best, the best defense is a good offense. No, it isn't. Like, you don't, okay, yeah, you can throw crazy hands in boxing, but that's just people swinging for the fences. Yeah, it looks good, except it's poor. It's people are just swinging as many punches as they can in the, in the idea that if I, as long as I hit you first, you aren't going to hit me. Yeah. That's a terrible way of looking at it. 
It's what I call the Phil Baroni strategy. Basically, if I just wing everything I've got in 10 seconds and knock you out, awesome, I win. Otherwise, you're going to whoop my ass. <laughs> that, exactly. That's basically what you're talking about if you think defense and offense are opposites. Exactly. And, you know, like I said, we, we learned jujitsu as a martial art. Yeah, every other combat sport has a defensive posture. As in judo guys keep their arms in to defend their, their lapels and defend their armpits. Wrestlers have a defensive posture of keeping their, their chin up, arms in, squat position, and then they fight from it. And then boxers have a position where they have their, their hands covering their chin, and then they punch from it when it's safe and return when it's not. Jiu-Jitsu, no. We're going we're to keep our arms and everything open, and we're just going to try and brute force our way through everything. And then one guy came out and said, "Low, there is a posture like all these other combat sports, and everyone thinks he's insane. <laughs> or, and, or thinks, oh, that's all it is. Like, Again, like this whole criticism of Raul, like it only he only won when he left the defensive posture. Well, yeah, like you only win in boxing when you punch the other guy in the face, <laughs> but like, which meant all oh, the defensive posture in boxing doesn't work because you had to punch him. Do you know how stupid this sounds? <laughs> like, yeah. sweet Jesus, it's hard to listen to sometimes. <laughs> I think, yeah, as as much as I love Preet, I don't think he he gets his ideas across. Uh, he's very, very good at deep diving on the techniques and explaining everything. But I think, again, I kind of circle around to what I kind of said at the beginning is that I'm the yin to his yang, is that his details are awesome. I am never going to be as good as he is at deep diving in details, but I can explain the holistic approach of why he does what he does, which then maybe he misses sometimes. And that's where he attracts some problems. I know I, I talk about him a lot. I've got a lot of respect for him and, and love for him as, as, as a coach and a mentor and as a friend, but it's very hard to talk about what I do without bringing him up because I said, we are two sides of the same coin. He's very technical and very detail-oriented and, and deep diving into this, this madness. I'm going to explain why it's all there and why we're doing what we're doing and why it all relates together. And it was interesting. Like I rolled of one of the, black belts from the from the mental models discord channel whilst i was in arizona and he even commented saying that i'm a better ambassador for this whole system than pre is i was like that makes no sense whatsoever um like i think it i think it does make sense though because i i definitely have had the same problem too when i first started looking at preach stuff i really had trouble relating to the way he was showing it and explaining it. And I, it wasn't until I got onto a, a one hour call with him and just had him kind of break it down for me and answer my questions that I, I sort of got where he was coming from. I think that he, from an information communication standpoint, that's kind of probably the thing that he needs to patch up. And that's where I think people like us come into play, right? I think that maybe we can provide a, a more nuanced explanation because yeah, Preet is so deep in the read sometimes that I think it's hard to really extract from him exactly what the stuff means in a way that a lay person would understand. Exactly. I think that's why, again, the, that one video that kind of went semi-viral is that I just explained Preet's stuff, why he does what he does, why this defensive posture exists, where it fits in with jiu-jitsu. And I was like, oh my God, game-changing. It's like, no, it's, it's what this guy's been saying for years. Like, Except he just... I mean, it was interesting, actually, is that he showed something about hand fighting from one position once. And then I kind of went, oh, damn, that kind of makes most sense, you know, across the board. And so I started to do it from, from close guard. And then he saw me doing it and went, why do you do that from there? It works really well. I was like, it was your idea. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> I, again, you get so kind of 
deep diving into certain things. You can't see how it relates to other things. And, you know, I'm just good at then seeing how it relates to other things. And then he'll look at it and go, oh yeah, it works really well from here. And then he'll start using it. And I know when I first started teaching in this style, he, I think got slightly offended. Like I was stealing his stuff. It was like, no, I'm, I'm, I can't do what you do. I'm not that good. But maybe just because of where I've come from and, and how I've had to learn jujitsu, I'm just, or maybe just I'm more of a, a natural English speaker that I'm just better at explaining these ideas. Uh, I, I think that's my final idea of, I'm aware that this whole thing was, has almost become like a defensive defense of Preet and his system, <laughs> but it's very hard to, to I say, do what I do and explain why I do the things that I do without talking about this whole person that kind of invented it. Well, let me ask you a question, Chris. If people want to message you and argue about defensive jujitsu, how do they go about doing that? <laughs> So if anyone's interested in, in, in arguing with me or talking to me or anything like that, I'm very easy to find on Facebook, Chris Paynes. So that's P-A is pain, as in, ah, this hurts, uh, with an E-S on the end. I'm visible on social media, Instagram, Facebook. And if you want to, if you're interested in this, uh, this, this one video that kind of explained everything, if you type how to defend everything into BJJ, into YouTube, you'll find me. And uh, keep commenting on that, and I'll, I'll read the comments. And, you know, because anytime I have a sad day, I look at those comments and it cheers me right up. Uh, so throw <laughs> some, throw some shade on that and I'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And I would suggest if you want much more conversation about defensive strategy, the defensive paradox and to talk up this Preet stuff, for example, first of all, like I said, I had a really good chat with Preet about this on episode 140, where he explained the whole thing. But additionally, I'm in the process of launching a six part series with Preet, one episode for each of his defensive positions on BJJ Mental Models Premium. So please do consider checking that out if you want to learn more about these kinds of concepts. And if the stuff that we talked about here on this episode today resonated with you. There's a lot more of that on BJJ Mental Models Premium. Best way to get there is premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a free trial, so it doesn't cost you anything to give it a shot. Again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Trying to build the uh, masterclass of jujitsu here. There's over 20 hours of audio series content on there now, so it'll keep you busy. Please do check it out. Again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Chris, thanks again so much for coming by. Really awesome conversation. Always love to talk about concepts in jiu-jitsu. So greatly appreciated that you spent some time here with us today. That was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Um, I've wanted to do this for so long, so I'm, I'm really appreciative. Thank you. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. And of course, to everyone out there who checks us out every week. Thanks to you as well. Talk to you guys next week. <laughs>